Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hello, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the largest audiobook service around. There are hundreds of thousands of titles available to download, including many Audible originals and exclusives that you just can't get anywhere else. Right now, you can support the show and start a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com historyofpersia, or follow the link in this episode's description. With that trial, you will get a credit that can be exchanged for any audiobook in the catalog, regardless of the price, and two free Audible originals. If you keep going, you'll get that same three credits every month. As usual, I like to suggest an audiobook to spend that credit on, and this time, that's Creation by Gore Vidal. This is a memoir of the fictional Persian ambassador to Athens named Cyrus Spitama. Cyrus is very old. 
a childhood friend of Xerxes serving in Athens on behalf of Artaxerxes I. Over the course of his life, Cyrus encountered many famous philosophers, ranging from Zoroaster to Gautama Buddha to Confucius to Socrates in his many travels around the ancient world. It's a fascinating trip through the world of the 5th century BCE. Of course, Vidal has to crush the timelines a bit, for nobody more than Zoroaster who gets relocated by about 600 years, but that just makes the story more fun. If it sounds like an interesting tale, head over to audibletrial.com slash historyofpersia and start listening today. Welcome to the History of Persia podcast, episode 31, The Naxos Incident. I hope everyone enjoyed the 2020 holiday special. Welcome to the year 1399. Here's to improving things as the year goes on. And I'll take this time at the beginning of the episode to address that. Because man, is this virus and quarantine thing crazy. At least here in the U.S., we're about halfway through the first wave of quarantines and closures, but I have to assume this isn't going to end anytime soon. Personally, I'm weathering the storm with my in-laws, but not too directly impacted overall. Both me and my wife already did a lot of our work from home, but I also want to take a moment and make a plug for online creators in general. Many of us are seeing decreased hours at work or cancelled in-person opportunities, So if you have been listening to a bunch of extra podcasts while stuck inside and you are able to, or you've been watching a ton of YouTube videos or on Twitch or whatever, please support online creators right now if you are able. Whether that's through Patreon or a subscription or coffee or buying merch or whatever else people happen to be offering. A lot of people are putting in a lot of extra work into their online content right now while they're away from work, and this would be a really great time to support them. That's not just a plea to give me money, but for everyone who podcasts or has other projects you can check out in the coming weeks. If you do want to support the History of Persia, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofpersia, or you can use the support page on the website. Everything will be linked in the description. Now also seems like a good time to remind everyone about the sticker giveaway, which will run for a little more than two weeks. You can enter for a chance to win a free History of Persia sticker with the title in Old Persian cuneiform, and all you have to do is contact me and let me know you want to throw your name in the hat. Do it on social media, email, the website, or any other way you have to contact me that I've forgotten about. Non-patrons or new patrons who contact me through Patreon will be entered twice. I think that's all the housekeeping, so on with the show. One thing that I have tried very hard to do with this show is not just follow the Greek story of the Persians. It takes a little bit more thought when your primary sources are almost all Greek, and the primary primary source is Herodotus, who is extraordinarily Greek-focused in a world history that only follows the Greeks' internal history about half the time. Herodotus spends lots of time on stories of Greeks that I've glossed over or ignored in favor of the Persians, who often act as framing devices. Lots of time is taken away from Cambyses to talk about Greek mercenaries in Egypt. The Greek skulaks 
is the vector for discussing Darius's Indian campaign. I've inferred things about the end of the 6th century in Anatolia from Greek stories, and the deciding moment of Darius's Scythian campaign comes down to a decision made by Greeks. That decision will actually be the starting point for today's episode, but the issue is clear, I think. The Greeks told stories about other Greeks, and the history of Persia provides context. But now it's time to lean back into the Greek stories, because at the outset of the 5th century BCE, Greece rapidly became the dominating issue of Persian political history. It's been a while since I talked just about the Greeks, or Greece. They featured prominently a few times. Bits of Greek territory were conquered in episode 24, when I covered Darius's conquests, and episode 18 was all about Persia's intersection with the Greek tyrant Polycrates and the island of Samos, which gave the Persians their launching point into the Greek islands of the Aegean Sea. But the last time I really talked about the Greeks for their own sake was all the way back in episode 6, introducing Ionia. Well, now it's time to return to the Ionian cities of the Anatolian coast. And since we haven't talked about them in much detail since Cyrus first conquered them, I guess we need to play some catch-up. We basically left the Greek cities of Anatolia in the 540s, and back then they had just been brutally subjugated by the Median general Harpagus, a key supporter of Cyrus the Great. All of these were Greek city-states that had been founded in the Greek Dark Age, between 1200 and 700 BCE. Generally, these cities had a culture of fierce independence. On rare occasions, a few cities could band together and form an alliance, called leagues by most historians. For accuracy's sake, I should probably also remind everyone of the different types of Greek cities in the region. I usually use the word Ionia to lump them all together, because it's by far the best known name, and gets used to refer to region-wide events like the Ionian Revolt. In fact, to the Persians, it was the primary name for all Greeks. The Persians called Greek speakers Iona, which was just their pronunciation of Ionia. In most ancient Greek dialects, it was more properly pronounced like Ionia, which easily blurs into Iona. Depending on what languages you speak, you might be familiar with this word. Some variation of the word Yona is the standard name for the Greeks in most languages influenced by the Persians. Many of them, including modern Persian, come from the Middle Persian pronunciation Yunnan, which appears in Hebrew, Arabic, Hindi, Urdu, and many other languages. Greek is actually also an exonym, if we're being perfectly honest. It was the preferred name for the Latin-speaking Romans, and did come from a Greek name for themselves, but not a common one. In both ancient and modern Greece, the preferred name for the whole region was Hellas, and its people were Hellenes, and we'll get to that name soon enough. But there were actually three primary groups of Greeks on the west edge of Anatolia. They were divided by the specific dialect of ancient Greek that they spoke. The northern third or so of the coast was dominated by Aeolic-speaking cities, the middle section were the actual proper Ionians, and the southern portion was home to the Doric speakers on the coast of Caria, who also ruled the inland region. Under King Croesus, 
Lydia subjugated and exacted tribute from all of these cities, with the exception of Miletus, the southmost Ionian city. Miletus held out because it was a trade power, with hegemony over the many islands sitting off the coast. They also buddied up with the Medes under Astyages. When Astyages fell, they happily shifted allegiance to the Persians, and when Cyrus conquered Lydia, Miletus came quietly. But Harpagus had to march through and drag all the other cities kicking and screaming into Persian dominion. All of the Greek cities of Anatolia, especially Miletus, remained remarkably loyal to the Persians for decades. It's kind of shocking given the force it took to bring them into line, or then again, maybe it shouldn't be and they stayed loyal because of the initial conquest being so terrifying. They may also have remained loyal because of the system of government the Persians put into place. Rather than treating the Ionian cities as simply part of Lydia, the Persians recognized the cultural and social differences of the Greeks. They installed tyrants, Greek autocrats without any traditional rights to power. Each Ionian city, or cluster of cities in the case of Caria, was ruled by a tyrant who managed the day-to-day -day operations and reported to the Persian satrap in Sardis, who in turn reported to the great king. All through the crisis years of 522 and 521, the Greek subjects of the great king stayed loyal to the empire. Well, I suppose they stayed loyal to the satrap Oroites, who was quietly making a bid for independence, but his subjects didn't note that. Once Oroites was deposed, the emissary who brought the order to remove him was probably in charge for a short time until a suitable permanent replacement could be found. Fortunately, there was already a suitable Persian on hand who would have been familiar with the Lydian satrapy. This was one Otanes, son of Sesamnes. We'll actually be revisiting Otanes at some point in this coming series of episodes on the revolt. Inconveniently, he's actually one of two Otanes that we have in play right now. The satrap is an entirely different person from the other Otanes, who is one of the seven conspirators that assassinated Bardia Gomada. Fortunately, the higher-ranking Otanes mostly drops out of recorded history after that event. Satrap Otanes was from a family of judges, probably a hereditary position. I mentioned a few episodes back that beginning with Cyrus, a Babylonian-style legal system was spread over the whole empire and run by centrally appointed judges. Well, one of these judges, possibly appointed by Cyrus himself, was Sisamnes, positioned in Sardis. Sisamnes didn't meet a pleasant end. He accepted a bribe to rule in favor of a guilty party during the reign of Cambyses. Furious that his appointed judge had compromised the integrity of Persian authority, Cambyses supposedly had him flayed alive. The incident is recorded by Herodotus. Otanes lucked out. Rather than demoting their entire family and replacing them, Cambyses allowed the son of Sisamnes to take over his father's position. Clearly, Odonis served loyally well into Darius's reign because sometime after 520, he was elevated from judge to satrap of Lydia. As Lydian satrap, Odonis raised and commanded troops and ships from both his inland territory when Darius crossed the Hellespont and invaded Scythian territory around 513 BCE. And it's in that miserable expedition that Herodotus places the seeds of the Ionian Revolt. 
and an effort to conquer the Scythians of southeastern Europe, Darius crossed over to the smaller continent, marched through eastern Thrace, and crossed the Danube River in pursuit of a Scythian tribe or tribes that refused to face them in open combat. Instead, they led Darius on a wild goose chase through open, barren steppe, potentially leading him as far as the Crimean Peninsula, according to some interpretations. While Darius was trekking inland with the main body of the army, the Persian fleet halted at the mouth of the Danube. These were mostly Ionian ships, crewed by Ionian soldiers. These Greeks were left to guard the bridge that Darius had constructed over the river. Why an almost entirely non-Persian contingent was left to guard this crucial crossing is not explained, and it is in fact one of the many details that have led scholars to question the authenticity of Herodotus's story. Regardless, his story is what we've got. When Darius finally gave up the chase and started heading back toward the Danube, the Scythians circumvented his army and rode up to the Greeks. Apparently, they had an understanding of the Persian political situation because they tried to entice the Ionian tyrants commanding the bridge to destroy it and abandon the great king, along with his army to be slaughtered by the steppe riders. Some of the Ionian rulers were ready to go along with it, but Miletus was still the most prominent Ionian city, and its tyrant, called Histias, saw more to gain working with the Persians than going into revolt. He was also the overall commander of the Ionian navy, and convinced his countrymen to stay loyal to the great king. They lied to the Scythians, and said they'd dismantle the bridge, and then the Scythians went off to scout for Persian troops. Instead of fleeing, the Ionians waited in their ships until the army returned, and then ferried Darius and his troops across the Danube, and away from the hostile Scythians. Darius wanted to reward Histias for his loyalty and granted the tyrant's request to add a small settlement near the mouth of the Danube to his control, in addition to Miletus. The Ionians had started a small colony in the months that Darius was away. What Darius did not know was that Histias had discovered silver mines on the Thracian coast and stood to benefit immensely from the new colony. Megabazos, the commander of the Persian forces remaining in Europe, who would go on to subjugate Thrace and Macedon, grew suspicious and possibly jealous of Histias. When he realized why the tyrant wanted a Thracian colony, he informed Darius, and Histias was summoned to the royal court. That's not really an offer you get to refuse, and once he was there, Histias was told not to leave. Instead, his son-in-law, Aristagoras, would rule in Miletus in his stead. Officially, Histias was still the tyrant, but in reality, he was a captive, and Aristagoras was running the show. Other commanders on the Scythian expedition also appear to have distinguished themselves in more pleasing ways. Megabazos, conqueror of Thrace, was made governor of Hellespontine Phrygia, while Otanes, satrap of Lydia, apparently proved himself a capable military commander because he was soon reassigned to take over Megabazos's fleet in the Aegean. Darius's own brother, Artaphernes, was sent to take Otanes' spot as satrap of Lydia. 
I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. This big reshuffle of commanders and satraps around 513 set the stage for the Persian commanders of the upcoming war. Despite a couple of individual success stories, and staying loyal to Darius against the Scythians, the Ionians saw Darius's weary and exhausted army marching back out of the steppe with no real successes to speak of, and they began to wonder if this was really the same terrifying force of wrath that had conquered their parents and grandparents on behalf of Cyrus the Great. Despite this initial seed of doubt, things remained quiet for another 14 years, all through the end of the 6th century BC. But that whole time, apparently unbeknownst or unimportantly to the Persians, the situation in Ionia was deteriorating. Herodotus doesn't discuss this because he preferred to attribute everything to personal decisions of individuals, but the socio-economic situation of the 6th century in Ionia must have played a role, and historian Pierre Briant thinks that it was probably the most important factor. There are two basic components to this. The first is the state of the Ionian economy. Understandably, the last 40 years hadn't been financially kind to the conquered Greek cities. Several cities were sacked or suffered from mass deportations to Parsa and Carmana. Most of the islands that had formerly affiliated themselves with mainland cities gravitated towards Polycrates on Samos and the island of Naxos as their new protectors. The loss of people, infrastructure, territory, and allies all stifled the Ionians. They started losing their market share, too. At the beginning of the 6th century, the Ionian cities were the leading cities of Greece, and competed with the Phoenicians for dominance in the Mediterranean. By the end of the century, the Phoenicians had eclipsed them within the Persian Empire, and cities on the Greek mainland had become more prominent as well, like Corinth or Athens. The Ionian cities were still hubs of trade and maritime activity, 
and they played a key role in trade between the Empire and the Black Sea and the Greek cities of the mainland, but they were quickly being supplanted in terms of importance. The social systems were also beginning to teeter, probably due in part to a decline of the merchant class described above. Their Greek neighbors on the mainland were abandoning tyranny as a form of government. Usually, this meant establishing a city council composed of aristocrats or oligarchs. Some places, most prominently Athens, took things a step further. They gave some political power to ordinary citizens. Gasp! And now is when I had planned to properly introduce the Athenians. But by the time I settled on a good starting point, it was roughly contemporary with the Assyrian Empire rather than the Persians. So I think I'll have to save that for next time. Instead, I'll keep talking about Ionia and bring us up to the point of revolt. As the aristocrats and wealthy families of the Ionian cities watched their mainland cousins throw out their tyrants and seize power for themselves, they naturally began contemplating doing it at home. As the common people of their cities heard about experiments with popular government, they couldn't help but wonder too. And all of this was under economic pressure, where both classes were seeing hard times. But the tyrants of Ionia had a crucial difference from the tyrants of the islands and the mainland. Defying and overthrowing an Ionian tyrant was also an act of rebellion against the king of kings. But as tensions mounted, mainland Greeks grew in power, and the Ionian merchants waned, they also saw Darius himself retreating out of the steppe with his head hung. And despite all of that, it took a full decade for something to incite open revolt. That inciting incident came, unsurprisingly, from an outside Greek city-state. Toward the end of 500 BCE, a group of aristocrats had fallen from favor and been exiled from the island of Naxos, the largest in the Cyclades, dead center in the Aegean Sea. They fled to Miletus, and met with Aristagoras, the acting tyrant there. They begged him for help, restoring them to power, which triggered a domino effect of Persian officials trying to take over Naxos. Aristagoras wanted to restore them to power and make Naxos, and all of the smaller islands affiliated with it, dependencies of Miletus. But he didn't have the funds or the men to launch an amphibious siege all alone. So he went up to Sardis and met with the newest satrap and brother of the king, Artaphernes. Artaphernes was all set to do it. Adding any territory in the Aegean was a plus for him, because everything in the west became part of Lydia by default and increased his own wealth and prestige. But he couldn't start a war without royal approval. So he sent a messenger to Darius who was probably removed enough that he was told how to perceive the situation by pro-Artifernes members of the court. Naxos was presented as the key to controlling the Cyclades, which were stepping stones to controlling the whole Aegean and beyond. So Darius sent his approval back down the chain of command. Unfortunately for Aristagoras and the Naxian aristocrats who had started this whole thing, somebody at some point added stipulations. Namely, it wasn't an Ionian fleet, and Aristagoras wasn't the commander. Instead, Megabates, the son of the recent conqueror Megabazus, was placed in command of a royal Persian fleet. This was the increasingly cosmopolitan fleet composed largely of Phoenicians as well as Ionians, 
and incorporating crewmen from as far off as the Eastern Steppe. It was a fleet to bring Naxos and the Cyclades into the Empire, not Miletus. Aristagoras was still nominally commanding his own forces under Megabates and the larger fleet, but according to Herodotus, they came into conflict before even setting out. The Persian commander harshly punished a Greek ship captain. Aristagoras overturned the punishment. Herodotus says this drama led Megabates to sabotage the invasion and inform the Naxians ahead of time. That doesn't make any sense, because this was Megabates' opportunity to become a great Persian conqueror like his father. He wouldn't want to blow it. Also, the Naxians probably wouldn't need an informant. After several months, it probably wasn't a huge secret where their exiles had fled to, and that a Persian fleet was amassing on the Greek coast. But they were better prepared than the Persians had ever expected. They cleared their fields, fortified, and provisioned themselves for a lengthy siege, and then left the Persians to attack a city on an island with no food. With two bickering commanders, the Persians set out for Naxos. Herodotus, who almost always exaggerates his numbers, says the Naxians had 8,000 hoplites, Greek-style infantry. He says the Persians had 200 triremes, which also equates to about 8,000 infantry at most. And of course, both sides would have had many others in the form of Naxian citizens and Persian rowers. The numbers aren't Herodotus's most implausible, but they're still on the high side for a campaign like this. The important detail, though, is that it was an even match, and the Persians had to supply their force overseas the whole time because the Naxians didn't leave them any crops to pillage. Herodotus tells us that they tried to assault the city of Naxos immediately after landing and were repulsed before settling into a four-month siege. By the end of the summer of 499, the Persian budget assigned to Megabates for the expedition had run out, and Aristagoras was burning through both Miletus's treasury and his own fortune. Out of money and making no progress, it seems Megabates gave the order to withdraw, and Aristagoras had to follow because he couldn't support the attack on his own in the first place. When Aristagoras got back to Miletus, he had a huge problem on his hands. He had drained his own coffers, understandably angering his people. He also now owed Artaphernes for the failed expedition, which had also failed to enrich the satrap. Of course, he didn't have the funds for that either. He was almost certainly facing losing his position and being replaced as tyrant. Either a new acting tyrant would fill his place, or Histias's family would be removed entirely. According to Herodotus, what happened next was orchestrated by the exiled Histias. Unhappy with his forced vacation in Susa, Histias is supposed to have tattooed instructions to revolt on the head of a slave, waited for his hair to grow out, and then sent him to Miletus with the instructions to shave his head, and then read the instructions sent by Histias. This is plainly ridiculous for a lot of reasons, starting with how did they hide the slave's head in the meantime, but it may point to Histias' actual position in support of the Ionians. Aristagoras gathered his aristocrats and advisors and called for a vote to revolt. If he was doing this, he needed to know that he had support. They were almost unanimous. 
The only dissenter was the chronicler Hecateus, who was one of Herodotus's major sources, and thought that the Ionians were going to be horribly outmatched. Study your history, kids. It might give you some clues as to how things are going to play out in the future, because, of course, he was right. But desperate times called for desperate measures. At Naxos, the Ionians saw the second Persian invasion force in 15 years retreat after deciding a fight was more trouble than it was worth. At Naxos, the Ionians saw the second Persian invasion force in 15 years retreat after deciding a fight was more trouble than it was worth. They didn't have to win, they just had to outprice the Persians. The thing is, for any of this to work, they needed the people on their side. They needed both the aristocracy and the general population to fight for them. And those elements seized this moment as their bargaining chip. When Miletus called to reform the Ionian League, the other cities demanded Athenian-style democracy or some other kind of popular government. And shockingly, Aristagoras agreed. He stepped down. Except he didn't really. Aristagoras abolished the Milesian tyranny, and his city began establishing popular governance. But this was all contingent on winning a war with the massive behemoth of Persia. Aristagoras was not immediately forced to flee. He was still the overall commander of the Ionian forces in this revolt. And to get the support of the other Ionian cities, he went to Mios in northern Caria. The army from the disaster at Naxos was still assembled there, and the Milesians captured all of the tyrants from all of the Ionian cities and sent them packing. They established popular or aristocratic rule in all of Ionia, and gained the support for the oncoming war. The next order of business was securing the coastline. The new Ionian army seized the Persian fleet that was also recovering at Mios to ensure their own naval power in the coming fight. Aristagoras had each Ionian city appoint a general to serve as a command structure, and then once Ionia had its military and political affairs in order, he set out himself to mainland Greece in search of more allies. He first went to Sparta, where he met with one of its reigning kings, Cleomenes I. Now, Sparta still wasn't the legendary warrior kingdom it would go on to be, but their reputation was starting to spread. Under Cleomenes, they had even developed a bit of a reputation for intervening in foreign revolutions. Aristagoras praised the glory of Spartan warriors and dismissed the Persians as weaklings who wore trousers into battle. And as every good Greek knew, real men fought in skirts. But Cleomenes thought in small Greek terms. To the Spartans of the early 5th century, you defeated an enemy by finding their main city and sacking it. According to Herodotus, he was appalled to discover that it would take three whole months just to reach Susa. Presumably, Aristagoras didn't go into detail about how there were actually four or five main Persian cities. The Spartans couldn't possibly afford to be away from home for that long without risking rebellions in their own territory, in a questionable story that seems a little too much like foreshadowing. Herodotus says that Cleomenes didn't make his decision until his daughter Gorgo derided the Milesian leader. That's the same Gorgo who would go on to marry King Leonidas of 300 fame. Aristagoras was sent away, and for the second time, the Spartans refused to fight the Persians on behalf of other Greeks. 
Aristagoras turned to Athens, where he made a dynamic speech in front of their popular assembly and persuaded the young democracy to join the Ionians in their war with the Persians. After Athens, Aristagoras stopped at Eritrea, a smaller Greek mercantile city that sat just off the mainland. The Eritreans also agreed to aid the Ionians. Herodotus attributes this to an ancient debt between Eritrea and Miletus, but they probably also wanted to limit Persian power over their Mediterranean trade routes. The Athenians gathered 20 of their own ships, and the much smaller Eritrea sent five more. The 25 ships sailed to Miletus, where they prepared to launch a first strike against the Persians. And I think that's where the narrative will resume next time. In the next episode, I'll properly introduce the city of Athens and its people, as well as some of the key elements of Greek society that we'll need to talk about them as Persia becomes more and more embroiled in Greek affairs. Once we know who we're dealing with, the narrative will continue with a Greek preemptive strike on Sardis itself. Until then, if you want more information about the show, my bibliography, the Persian family tree down to the children of Darius, or information about how to support the show, you can do that on the website at historyofpersiapodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with me, either for the sticker giveaway or any other reason, like to ask a question or give feedback, you can reach out through the contact page or historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on social media. On Facebook and Instagram, I am at the History of Persia Podcast, and on Twitter, it's just at History of Persia. Feedback and support is always welcome, and I really do encourage everyone to leave a review if you like the show or you're excited for what comes next. So if you have Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Facebook, or some other review platform, please let me know what you think. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.